Hello and welcome back to Shoesmiths on Tap, the podcast where we talk to each other and to you about what's going on in the world of pensions. I'm Julian Richards, a partner in the Shoesmiths Pensions team, and I'm joined by my colleague and fellow partner, Lynette Lewis. Welcome, Lynette. Hi, Julian. Hi to everybody listening. So, Lynette, it wasn't too long ago that you and I sat here talking about the draft occupational and personal pension schemes conditions for transfer regulations on what was, if I remember correctly, our first ever episode. Yep. In honour of that, I thought it fitting that this episode ought to be dedicated to the final regulations which came into force on the 30th of November. Yeah, I agree. We really ought to have another chat about these regulations because they look quite different to the drafts that we saw and spoke about. As you and I discussed in episode one, you're right there, of this podcast, the draft regulations contained four transfer conditions, each of which applied to different types of receiving scheme. They explicitly included conditions relating to transfers to UK occupational pension schemes or to qualifying recognised overseas pension schemes, or QROPs as we refer to them in the pensions world for short, and those are particularly vulnerable to scams. The final regulations, however, only contain two transfer conditions. The first one, which applies to transfers to certain prescribed schemes, and the second one, which applies to everything else. As I remember it, Lynette, the first condition you mentioned there was also in the draft regulations. Is that right? Yes, that's right, but it has been tweaked a bit. Originally, the schemes covered by the first condition were public service schemes, authorised master trusts, authorised collective money purchase schemes and schemes provided by an insurer, which were both registered with the FCA and regulated by the PRA. So the last of those was omitted from the final regulations after feedback suggested their inclusion could be misleading in the eyes of individual savers, who might consider any scheme, even a legitimate one, which does not fall within that scope as being unsafe to invest in, which of course isn't always the case. So, in the final regulations, prescribed schemes are limited to just public service schemes, authorised master trusts and authorised collective money purchase schemes. And everything else, including transfers to occupational schemes and QROPs, fall into the second condition. And that second condition is the red and amber flag system adapted from the uh, from the regulations. Yeah. Amber flags include things like unregulated investments in the receiving scheme and require trustees to direct the member to the money and pension service for guidance and to suspend the transfer until evidence of that guidance having been taken is provided. Red flags include the member receiving an incentive or pressure to transfer or failing to provide evidence that they have taken guidance from the Money and Pension Service, having been directed to do so. And if a red flag is present, the transfer can't proceed. When trustees receive a member's transfer paperwork, they must be satisfied on the balance of probabilities that no flags are present in order to pay the transfer. Yeah, that's right. But Julian, as lawyers, we tend to hear the term on the balance of probabilities quite a lot. But I think it's possible we take that term for granted. So what do trustees need to think about? If you had to explain it to a stranger on the street, what would you say? Uh, Great question, Lynette. The balance of probabilities is one of a number of standards of proof, or to put it another way, degrees of satisfaction set out in the new regulations. There's a lot for trustees to think about when reviewing transfers now. And I could see that they might easily get bogged down in the technicalities of how certain regulations require them to be 
in any given scenario. This particular standard of proof, the balance of probabilities, really just requires trustees to look at the member's paperwork and decide, by reference to the warning signs set out in the regulations, whether they think the transfer is more likely than not to be genuine. If they decide that it might not be, they have to take additional steps before deciding whether or not to pay the transfer. Yeah, OK. I think that's a great way of expressing it. If trustees cannot reach that level of satisfaction, in most cases, they probably need to ask the member for further evidence. The exception to that might be the presence of a very obvious red flag, which would immediately stop the transfer in its tracks. So further information requests themselves add a layer of protection for members. Firstly, the pensions regulator has made it clear in new guidance published to coincide with the new regulations that trustees need to explain to members why they need the evidence they have requested. This explanation alone could alert members to a scam risk. Secondly, the evidence must be provided by the member directly. So this is a strict rule which applies even where a member has appointed a representative. There are some exceptions relating to mental capacity and it is designed to help minimise the opportunities for scammers to interfere. Personally, I think that it's a great way to do that. Scammers could, of course, tell members what information to provide or withhold. There's just no way of getting around that. But this change should provide some degree of protection for both members and trustees. In addition to that, a member's response to an information request will dictate how or if their transfer proceeds at all. If the member returns evidence which is incomplete, or if trustees suspect it isn't genuine or wasn't provided by the member directly, then an amber flag is triggered and the member will have to seek guidance from the money and pensions service before anything else can happen. If the member refuses or fails to provide the evidence requested at all, a red flag is triggered and the transfer simply cannot be paid. That's right, Lynette. Um, but I'm afraid I'm going to have to get my own back on you now and ask you about the different standards of proof trustees need to bear in mind when assessing the evidence supplied by members. Oh, thanks very much. Thank you. So when trustees are looking over the evidence, the, uh, the evidence a member has provided, the regulations say that if they are considering directing member to the money and pensions service or preventing the transfer, they must be satisfied that the relevant flag is present and the degree of satisfaction varies depending on the flag in question. For most flags, the standard is reason to believe, but for some it's beyond reasonable doubt. So my question to you, Lynette, is which of those do you think is the higher standard? Ha! That's an easy one. Reason to believe is a low standard. Trustees just need to have a reasonable foundation for their belief that a flag is present. Beyond reasonable doubt, on the other hand, is a pretty high standard and one that we often see in criminal proceedings in the UK. But for me, this distinction between standards of proof is a bit academic and not something trustees should be focusing too much attention on. The practical reality is that if trustees have a reasonable suspicion that a red or amber flag is present after they have reviewed the member's evidence, they cannot simply wave the transfer through. They have to take further steps and that might mean telling the member that they cannot transfer their benefits. I agree. In cases where there are doubts, trustees are at least likely to want the added security for the member and for themselves of the member having taken independent guidance from the money and pension service. And even where the trustees do decide that a red flag is present, there is scope under the new regulations for them to reconsider that decision 
if they discover they made a mistake or if the member provides further evidence and a reasonable explanation for why they didn't provide that evidence in the first place. That's true. And because of the disclosure requirements in the new regulations, members will also know from the outset that their transfer will be assessed against these new conditions. So further questions ought not to be too surprising for them. True. But there's one thing we haven't touched on yet, Lynette, and that's what happened to those troublesome transfers to occupational schemes and to cure-ops. Well, they fall under the second condition too, but they are subject to additional checks. So as well as the general red and amber flag assessment we've already discussed, trustees must always ask for evidence of the relevant employment or residency link. The regulations set out what trustees can accept as evidence of those relevant links, but if that evidence doesn't demonstrate the relevant link, the transfer doesn't automatically fail. Although we know that the absence of a link presents a scam risk, there may be situations in which it is absent for genuine reasons. And so an amber flag will be present and the member must be directed in those circumstances to the Money and Pension Service for guidance. As we've already touched upon, if the member subsequently fails to provide that evidence and that they've taken the guidance, a red flag arises and the transfer cannot be paid. I think it's worth noting as well that although the new regulations technically only apply to statutory transfers, the regulator has made it clear in the new guidance we mentioned earlier that it expects to see the same level of due diligence for non-statutory transfers as well. And let's not forget that the regulations sit alongside the existing and separate obligations on trustees to check whether members seeking to transfer defined benefit provisions in excess of 30,000 have sought appropriate independent advice. Combined, these measures should, certainly on the face of things, offer members and trustees greater protection than ever before. I think that's right. And from a more technical perspective, they give trustees a legal basis for acting and in particular for requiring members to seek independent guidance or ultimately to prevent a transfer, which should help manage member complaints, I think. I agree. But it seems to me that there is an obvious risk that transfers could incur delays, which would eat into the statutory six-month deadline for completing transfers if trustees get caught in a back and forth with members over evidence. Yeah, that is a real risk, I think. But it seems the government is keen to keep an eye on how these regulations actually work in practice because it plans to review them in 18 months to check how effective they are. So that might be one of the things they look out for. For now, it's important to remember that the onus is still on trustees to identify red and amber flags. And so they will need to get to grips with the new rules as soon as possible and work with their scheme administrators to decide what processes ought to be put in place to deal with them. A useful tip there, the net, uh, and a good point for us to end on, I think. Indeed. Remember, if you want to find out more about the Shoesmiths Pensions Team and the work we do, please visit us at shoesmiths.co.uk slash expertise slash services slash pensions. And if you have any questions for us, please send them to pensionspsl at shoesmiths.co.uk. Thanks, Julian. And thanks, everyone, for listening. 